We will be continuing our worship with the reading of the word, and today is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has needed it, and it will send, back, send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of in the street, and they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And as he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he looked, had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Pastor Rich. Uh, welcome to Risen. And if you're visiting us for the first time, man, I'm so excited that you're joining us. I hope you can join us for Good Friday here at 6.30. And then, of course, Easter Sunday and the lunch after Easter Sunday. Um, even if you don't have kids, you know, come join us for the Easter egg hunt just to hang out, um, you know, uh, fellowship and get outside and enjoy the sun. Um, invite your friends. You know, uh, Easter is actually... Uh, the most attended uh, Sunday of the year. You know, people think it's Christmas, but sadly, people are more on vacation during Christmas, <laughs> but it's Easter. And so we're really excited here at Risen. We believe God is working. We believe that he's going to uh, use Holy Week to really bless us and gather those he already knows will come. Um, but throughout Christian tradition, Holy Week comprises of Jesus's last week on earth before he died and resurrected. So Holy Week follows the Savior into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, today, to the cross on Good Friday, and then out the tomb on Easter Sunday. And so today is the start of Jesus' last week. Um, some, some people call it the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, right? That's what passion means. Uh, but why do we call it Palm Sunday? Have you thought about that? Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Well, it doesn't say this specifically in our text, uh, but in John's gospel, in his account of the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus. You see, in the ancient Mediterranean world, palm trees were a symbol of triumph. That's what it was, right? We do this today, right? Victory, right? Um, back then, they got palm branches. This is because palm branches symbolized in the ancient Mediterranean world that if there was a palm tree, there was water, right? And so if you're in the desert, you're journeying, you see a palm tree from a far distance because they're massive and tall, you know then that there's water. 
you can survive. You can rest. You can take care of your family. You can build a city. It gives you hope for deliverance. And because of this, uh, when Roman generals would come back from a victorious war, the Roman citizen would carry palm branches and throw them at the general's pathway because he had triumphed over their enemies. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, his people are honoring him in a similar fashion with palm branches as the future king of Israel to bring them deliverance, autonomy. It's a massive statement. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this triumphal entry. And the three points we're going to look at first is we're going to look at the desire for a king. And then two, we're going to look at the purpose of the king. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the response, the response of the people. And so we see here that as, as, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowd says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 118, which anticipates a future king, a great warrior king like David. Um, for this first point, I'm going to have us kind of be in the classroom, and then after that, we, we're going to talk about some biblical stuff, some historical stuff, and then, and then we're going to get into the living room, all right? And then we're going to talk about what does this mean for us? What do, what do we do with this historical information, with this biblical information, but in Israel's thinking, in their literature and their expectation, um, they believe that someday someone like King David would come. Because when David was king, that's when everything was great, right? Israel was a sovereign nation and they were the strongest nation in the land. They weren't giving tribute to other countries. Other countries were giving tributes to them. And so when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, people are carrying these palm branches because they think Jesus is that king and he's going to put everything right. You see? All my problems, Jesus is going to fix it. Now, this is not anything new, this expectation, this desire for a king, right? Uh, every four years, you know, there is this thing called an election, right? Right? And many of us, every four years, we have expectations, don't we? We're hoping that someone will put things right. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Present Concerns, uh, he says this about how we're always looking for kings or presidents or, you know, just these heroes and champions, how, how there is this deep longing within us to see someone put the mess right. He writes this, the actual, actual record of kings is abysmal. Yet, when we are disappointed to honor a king, we will honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. For our souls, like our physical nature, is hungry. What do our souls starve for? In a broken world, our souls starve for any kind of hope for triumph. Denied food and our soul will gobble up poison. What does Lewis mean by that? What he's saying is this. You know, we've gotten rid of kings. Uh, we've gotten rid of sort of uh, uh, moral victors. You know, we don't really believe that leaders have uh, the moral interest, uh, the greater interest. They're in it for themselves. We've given up on that. We're jaded. We're cynical. We don't trust any leaders. 
But he says, by and large, we are still, we're still looking for them. We still are looking for uh, victors, champions, heroes. There's a deep hunger inside all of us. A deep hope for victory and transformation and redemption and renewal and healing from the brokenness in this world and the brokenness in our hearts, right? Maybe you've experienced this. If you're dealing with some kind of physical illness, you're looking for the doctor that will be able to diagnose it and fix it, right? You're looking still for this victor and this triumph over this brokenness in your life. We would like these victors, we would like these leaders to be moral and good, but if they're not available, what Lewis is saying, we'll just take, we'll take anything. We'll settle for, for poison to our own peril, any leader. Another point to help us understand this, um, outside of the Bible, actually, the, the 20 best-selling books of all time are fiction, right? They're not nonfiction. The 20 best book-selling books of all time are fantasy, <laughs> right? Why is that? Lewis himself was a fictional writer, and, and what he understood is that there is this, we can't find it in this world. And we're so tired of reading nonfiction, brokenness and corruption and failure and weakness and cynicism that we are just, we've, we've forgotten about that and we want to live in a fantasy now. We want to live in a world, and this is why I love Lord of the Rings. And I'll watch that when I'm going through really difficult seasons in my life, right? Because I know like, that they're on a mission to save the world. Morality, goodness, righteousness, justice wins. You see? And when Lewis says um, that this deep desire for victory and triumph over the brokenness in our lives, he says this. He says, it's actually a memory trace. He gets cosmic here. And this is where he ties it back to the Bible. He says, it's a memory trace in the collective unconscious of all humanity. Why does everyone think like this? You don't have to be a Christian to look for some kind of triumph or victor and to know that it's brokenness. You could call it sin. You can call it atrocity. You can call it devastation and destruction. But we all know, no matter what religion, what country, any, everyone knows that there is brokenness and we're all looking for something better. And what Lewis says, it's, that, it's this memory trace in the deep unconscious of our souls of someone who is perfect of someone who is the king, who is the victor. Someone who is so great and so perfect, uh, so perfect and victorious. We, we had this memory trace that it is possible. It's not an empty longing, Lewis says. It's a memory trace in our souls. And he says it's rooted in Genesis. Because in Genesis, at the very beginning of history, there was a king, God. And there was a kingdom, Eden, and it was perfect. It was victorious, it was peaceful, it was joyful, it was loving, there was no sin, there was no brokenness, there was no pain, there was no betrayal, there was no suffering or sin or death. Everything was great. But when our first parents decided to live apart from God, when they rebelled against God, that's when chaos entered into the world, that's when everything fell apart. 
But Genesis 3 tells us that God said one last thing to them. He said one last thing to the entire human race that was unmediated face-to-face before the coming of Jesus. And he said this, I have one thing before we part. It's a word of hope. Things are bad. There's suffering. There's going to be death. But someday, someone will come and he's going to take on evil. He's going to take on sin and death. It's going to be a battle to the death. It will be a battle to his own death. But in his own death, he's going to win. That's what God said in the book of Genesis. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Right? God says there is going to be a victor. He will crush the ultimate enemy of sin, but it will cost him his life. Don't you, that's the original. I mean, when we think about uh, movies or books or anything, when we see them, what everyone knows, to be a true victor, there has to be a sacrifice, right? Those are some of the most powerful movies when there is victory over evil and the, the champion and the leader lays down his life. For it. What is that? That, that, that? You know, we're not just getting that from nowhere. Lewis is saying that's a memory trace of redemption. And what 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 the Bible says is that this hope for victory, this hope for redemption, this is the hope underneath all our hopes. You know what I'm saying? Your hope for fulfillment, that's a superficial hope. And the hope underneath that hope is finding fulfillment in in God, in his love, in his presence, right? The hope hope and motivation you need to get up every day, whether it's a new job or whether it's your family, whatever it is, what the Bible is saying, hey, that hope underneath that hope is actually my purpose for your life. That's what he's saying. And that's why when we get victory, uh, when we accomplish the superficial hope, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's having kids, maybe it's a new job, do you realize that it never fulfills, it never satisfies? You're still spiritually hungry, right? Just think about your life and all the boxes you've been able to check off and then ask yourself, am I satisfied with, if I look at that checklist, am I satisfied? No. Why? Because that checklist is the superficial hope and deep underneath that, you're longing for something better, something lasting, something perfect, something beautiful, unconditional, eternal. The Bible calls it in the book of Ecclesiastes, chasing after the wind, right? We call it the grass looks greener on the other side. All of that is a memory trace, you see? But Jesus comes on Palm Sunday and says, I'm the one, right? I'm the perfect friend. I'm the perfect spouse, I'm the perfect calling. You're looking for a calling in work? No, I give you the perfect calling. My work is the greatest work, right? Love, eternity, salvation of souls, healing and redemption, forgiveness and grace. He says, underneath your desire for security, I'm real security, right? Everything we have is going to burn up. I'm the one that can give you a lasting home, resurrection, Underneath your desire for love and acceptance from others, I'm the real love and acceptance that you need. Underneath, right, your desire for joy and laughter, I'm the one that can give you spiritual, everlasting, eternal, unshakable joy because I will always love you. I will always be there for you. 
So that's what we see here, friends. What's in store for you, you know, when, 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 when I meet up with you and I hear some of your struggles and I hear these expectations and hopes you have, do you know what I hear? Do you know what I, I see? I see, under, I see the hope underneath that hope, right? I see that, that what we need is a more stable and secure security. I see that what we need is a more fulfilling, more unconditional love. I see that what we need is a bigger picture, a bigger vision, a bigger purpose. You know, when we, you know, the, uh, these days we're always talking about sustainability, aren't we? Well, what is more sustainable than eternity? That's the first point. The real fulfillment of all our hopes, all our dreams, all our desires is found in Jesus, nothing less. He's the true friend of all friends, the true spouse of all spouses. He's the true deep rest of all the brief rests. You know, watching Netflix, playing a video game, that's a brief rest. What happens after that? You're still stressed out. But Jesus can give you the deeper rest that after you rest in him, it carries. He's the lasting joy of all temporary joys, right? Joy is so fickle. You could be so happy, right? For one thing, next moment something happens, you're like, my day is ruined, <laughs> right? And so you need something deeper underneath that superficial joy. So that's the first point. We all have this desire for a king, and it's the deeper hope underneath all our hopes. The second point, let's take a look at the second point, the purpose of the king. In verse 2, Jesus tells the disciples to go into the village where they find a colt. In the other Gospels, it's a colt of a donkey, so it's a young donkey. Now, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there was a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. And the prophet Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Interesting. See that word humble? I, I just want you to keep that word in mind. We'll get back to it, but here's what's happening. In our text, uh, historically, the situation is the week of Passover. Actually, uh, even today, right now, is the week of Passover. So Holy Week coincides with Passover week. And the Passover was instituted many years before Jesus, during the days of Moses, when God's people were in slavery in Egypt. They were oppressed, and they're waiting for God to deliver them from sin and suffering and death. But how God delivered his people was very strange. It was through an act of Passover. Could you imagine that, right? Uh, it's where a sacrificial lamb was chosen by the people of God. Could you imagine that? Someone's like, hey, I need you to deliver me from my terrible situation. They say, I want you to get a lamb I want you to kill it. I want you to put blood on, the, on your doorposts and then you're going to be fine. Like, nah, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But it was a lamb without spot or blemish and they would confess their sins against God and, the, and they would put their hands on the lamb and it symbolized that their sins were being transferred onto the lamb as a substitution. And then that, that lamb was killed and it died in their place. And what this symbolized was that the consequence for sin is death, which is why we'll all one day face death. 
we will not all be able to live forever. It, the Bible says it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be just. That's what the Bible says because the sin of one person would literally be endless. That's what the Bible says. And so through faith in a sacrificial lamb, God passes over Israel's sins. And they had to do this every year as a reminder of how God delivered them, not only from the sin of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's impending death for them, but also from their own sin. Because do you know what happened after Israel was freed from the slavery of Egypt? They took their own slaves, right? They oppressed their own people. So sin was not just in Pharaoh. Sin was not just outside of them. Sin was also inside of them. So this Passover lamb symbolized not only the sins of the world, it also symbolized their own sin. You see? God was delivering Israel through the Passover lamb. He was delivering Israel from sin in total. You see what I'm saying? It's holistic, holistic. I think that sometimes when, when we hear about God's forgiveness, we're like, oh yeah, 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 God forgives that person. And God's like, yes, but I'm also trying to forgive you. <laughs> That's what, the gospel is not just for them, it's also for you. And so let me just bring it back to our text here. This is why Jesus rides on a donkey. You see, back then, champions and victors, heroes rode through the city on what? A stallion, a war horse. But how is Jesus transported? On a mule. I want you to do this when you go home. When you Google, Google uh, donkey and you'll see how small a donkey is. And when you see an adult riding a donkey, literally the feet is touching the ground probably. It's an absurd, it's absurd, right? That, that's a whole, it's, it's, it's a contradiction for someone noble and great to be riding, a, it's for kids, right? You go to the petting zoo or the, it's a donkey, you don't see adults riding a donkey, right? It's the kids. You see, a mule is not used for glory. It's not used as an image of power. What is a mule used for? Service. It's an animal of humble service. And so the disciples are probably looking at this and man be like, oh my goodness, here goes Jesus on one of his crazy applications again. You're never going to win people over like this, Jesus. Like how are we going to throw, overthrow Rome? We need to get you a war horse. Think about it. Let's say today there's a monarch or a president or a prime minister being installed and they don't show up in a limo. They don't have a motorcade. They say, you know what? Give me a Honda Civic, right? Give me a used, I can't even afford a Honda Civic. Can you ask someone if I could borrow their Honda Civic? On the one hand, you're like, <laughs> that's not how it's done. On the other hand, maybe we have the um, creativity to think, this guy drives the same car that I drive. That's pretty humble. Jesus rides into town on a Honda Civic, right? The King of Kings, the great I am, the creator of the heavens and the earth, his vehicle of transportation for this great moment, for this great processional, right? Think about it. Let's say you're having a baby shower. Let's say you're having an uh, you know, uh, engagement party. It's ma massive and, and, and it's, you, know, you want to celebrate it. It's like this great procession. And then you know, Jesus says, go get me a mule, right? 
No king has ever ridden on a mule. Actually, there's one king, one king. In 1 Samuel, it says uh, that Saul sent messengers to Jesse and he said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. He wants, he wants David. He likes David, right? David had just killed Goliath. He's like, I like your son. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine, young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. So David is riding a donkey to Saul, right? It's, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing. It's an implicit prophecy there. David is a poor shepherd boy. He's humble. His family is poor. They can't afford a horse. So what they did was they sent David on a mule. And so what Jesus is saying, by coming in on, on a mule, he's saying, look, like if you knew your Bible, you would understand what I'm doing, right? I'm coming to deliver you, yes, but I'm not coming to deliver you from the Romans in power, in war, or in strength. I'm coming to deliver you from something you have forgotten about. I'm coming to deliver you from the brokenness underneath all the brokenness from the power of sin underneath all the practical offenses of sin. I'm coming to deliver you from death, right? You know, uh, there's this book by Ernest Becker. He's, um, it's a Pulitzer Prize, um, and you know, philosoph- he's a philosopher, and he says, everything we do in life, it's just, we're just trying to distract ourselves from death. That's what he says. That's all it is. You know, and he, he explains this is why hospitals are so clean and accommodating, you know, uh, because, and, they're, and they're trying to make it as, uh, um, not as sad as possible because they're trying to distract you. Imagine this. Imagine if someone came to you and said, hey, I can't give you that promotion. I can't give you, you know, this or that, but I can, I can save you from death. Would you want that? That's what Jesus is doing. So the Passover lamb is ultimately pointing to Jesus as the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb that will provide justice so that you and I, when we die, we will have eternal life. You see? So Jesus himself Right? When you think about a conflict, right, there's always a balance between justice and grace. You think about a court system, and if there's a crime committed, there's a decision that needs to be made. And the judge's job is to make sure that this person doesn't get away with this crime, and at the same time that this person doesn't get overpunished, because that itself would be unjust. You see? And sometimes it is the judge's prerogative whether or not they want to show this person grace and mercy, right? Or they want to give them the full extent of justice according to the law. And what Jesus is doing here is he is, he is providing the way out for us under the justice of God's court system, you see? So that we can receive grace and mercy. And so Jesus dies in our place so that the guilt of sin, so that the power of sin, the eternal penalty of sin would literally pass over us. That's why it's called the Passover lamb. 
And what we see here in the second point, the purpose of Jesus the king is that he's not just the king of power. He is also a king of grace. I think some of us, maybe we, we, we fall on one side or the other, right? But Jesus is both. He is a God of power, right? Some of us think Jesus is just our homeboy. He's just a God of grace. He's like, no, no, you don't, no, I'm not your homeboy. <laughs> I'm the king. I'm also a God of power. Now, some of us, we see Jesus or God and we go, oh man, like this guy, we're afraid of him. We just, we just feel overwhelmed with guilt, um, shame. And, but Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not just a God of power. I'm also a God of grace. Because what good would it be if Jesus had all the power in the world, but he didn't use it to help others. And so what we see here in the triumphal entry, by the, by the simple fact that he is riding a mule, that Jesus comes not only power, but humility. This brings us to the last point, the response of the people. Now, when, when we see Jesus doing this, we see this crowd and the disciples are in this crowd and we see three things that this group does and they express three things, truth, emotions and sacrifice okay truth they shout hosanna blessed is he who comes in the comes in the name of the lord right that's the truth jesus is the lord and they're shouting this in front of the romans it's a it's a pretty hostile um explosive situation you know the romans don't want israel to become a sovereign nation it's a very dramatic scene it's dramatic because the Romans would have heard this as treasonous because only Caesar, Caesar is Lord. It's like, nah, our country is Lord, right? But Jesus is saying, no, I'm the Lord. He is establishing himself here. But Jews would also be offended because they'd be like, only God is Lord. You may be a king, but you're not God, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, I am. Jesus he is establishing himself in authority over everyone and everything that has ever lived upon the earth or will ever live upon the earth. Massive statement. And yet his disciples are shouting this. They say, Jesus, you're the king and you're the Lord. There is no reservation. There is no fear. There is no approval of men and women in their heart. And I like to say it's, it's what's happening here is they're saying, Jesus, you are my king, no asterisk. You know, y'all know what an asterisk is? It's a little star, right, that companies put on a contract or marketing advertisement that lays out all the conditions and stipulations that will prevent them from fulfilling their end of the deal, Right? But what the disciples are displaying here is that Jesus is not the king with an asterisk. There's no fine print here. He's not the interim God. You know what I'm saying? It's not, yes, Jesus, but not today. It's not, okay, Jesus, but not that person or this thing. It's, yes, roger that. I understand. No asterisk. So church, I want to ask you a question. Do you follow Jesus as your king without an asterisk? Right? 
because we love asterisks, right? They, they give us excuses. Uh, they give us a way out when things get hard. We love following Jesus when it's convenient, when we feel like it, when we're desperate, when we need something from him. Those are all asterisks. But I want to read a passage right here that talks about worshiping Jesus with no asterisks. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's from the book of Habakkuk. And this is when Israel is in exile. They've been conquered by country after country. Um, They're in devastation. And this is what Habakkuk says. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Right? Don't you miss that kind of worship? Isn't there a deep longing for that kind of loyalty and commitment and relationship with God? That's, that's how it's meant to be, a relationship with no asterisks. Maybe it's a little scary, but I'll tell you right now, it is the most fulfilling thing you'll be able to ever experience as a human being. It's what you were created for. Second, we see uh, the people in our passage respond um, with emotions. Um, how, do, how do we know that? It says they shouted. They shouted. They shouted with a loud voice, with joy. So they're not saying like, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? No, <laughs> Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Are we done yet? No, right? Like no one is telling them, hey, disciples are not like, hey guys, guys, you gotta say Hosanna, okay? You gotta say Hosanna, right? No, no, they're all doing this just um, by their, on their own. I think there's something we need to learn here as a people. We're growing in it, but there's still more to learn. You see, all of us are worshipers, um, whether you're a Christian or not, we're, we're all worshipers, you know? If you go to a concert, you go to a stadium, what's happening? We're cheering, we're jumping out of our seats, we're excited, we're shouting, we're loud, we're singing, right? We'll put their face on our t-shirt, their name on the back, right? That's loud and joyful worship. No one has to tell you to do that. As a brand new Christian, when I um, started going out to church, I went to a Bible teaching um, church, but it was somewhat emotionally muted, <laughs> you know? Um, there was a joint worship night uh, one week with another church that called themselves a charismatic church, and so um, I didn't really know what that meant because I was a new Christian, so the churches came together for worship, um, and the next thing you know, um, the band kicks in and everyone's shouting, Right? People are happy, they're shouting, they're exuberant. It's, they're singing as if Jesus actually did these amazing things in the Bible. And he was resurrected. They had his unconditional love, that they had eternal life, and death was overcome. And at first I felt very uncomfortable, you know? I said, this is really awkward, just awkward. And then I thought, I guess if I was at a concert... Uh, I would do the same. If I was at a Golden State Warriors NBA Finals game, oh yeah, I'd be the same. Jesus is alive. He's victorious over death. He has forgiven all our sins. He's given us the Holy Spirit. I guess I, guess I should be a little bit happier. 
So church, I want to ask you, how about you? What do you get excited about? You know? What do you get loud over? Um, I, as you know, as everyone knows, I love the Warriors. And uh, uh, people will always get me, like, sign stuff from the Warriors. And uh, I would put it in this little corner. And I didn't realize what I was doing, but my friend joked around. He's like, hey, man, you're building a little shrine. <laughs> like, oh, crap. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is a little shrine. Shrine. But what gets you pumped up? What gives you joy? Right? Uh, what do you check when you wake up in the morning? What do, you, what, do you, what do you plan for? What are you praying about? What are you daydreaming about? That's, that's probably what you functionally worship. And they're usually good things, right? And, and it's not that these things are bad. It's just that we take good things and we make them God things. And those good things cannot fill the vacuum of being God in our hearts. And so what I'm saying is what we got to do is we got to take that worship and we've got to give that to Jesus because he's the king. He's died for you. He loves you. He's forgiven you. He's, he's with you. Everything is from him and through him and to him. Jesus deserves that. He deserves your emotions. You know? We shouldn't just cry when we're watching movies. We should weep when, when, we, are, when we are maybe lamenting over our sins. Or maybe we should weep with joy when we receive the love and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So it's not just truth. It's not just emotions. It is truth and emotions. And lastly, we see here sacrifice. When the disciples go and retrieve Jesus, the mule, the owner, it's so funny, right? They're getting this donkey and the owner says, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, that's my mule, man, <laughs> right? And the disciples say, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus' reputation is, is known. And he says, the Lord has need of it. What does the owner do? Does he say, right now? I'm, I gotta go run some errands. I need it, <laughs> Does he say, for how much, right? Do you know how much I could get for this mule? He doesn't say, tell the Lord to get someone else's mule. <laughs> I need this mule. He doesn't say any of that. The owner has a sacrificial attitude. This wasn't a horse, but it was still a valued possession. Jesus used it as a vehicle of trans transportation. It was a modern equivalent, like I said, to a very affordable car right? It wasn't a Lamborghini, but it was still a Honda Civic. <laughs> Such generosity from this owner. If the Lord needs it, he can have it. And in principle, friends, you and I, we need to be this way with our lives. We need to have this generous heart. If the Lord needs it, right? Lord, Everything I have is from you. It's through you and it is to you. It's all under contract. I'm not the king, you're the king, I'm a steward. And we don't even know the owner's name in this passage. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't even want the credit. He doesn't need recognition. He just wants to help. And when they bring this donkey to Jesus, there is no saddle. The owner is probably too poor to even provide a saddle. So what do the disciples do? They take their cloaks and they put it on the mule. And that day, your cloak was your most valuable clothing item. 
It was made of the best materials, very expensive, and it protected you from the elements because back then, there was no car, there was no train, there was no airplane. You had to walk. Kept you warm in the night because you would freeze without it. But we see here that they not only put the cloak on top of the mule, they laid it on the ground so that the mule could walk on top of it. Imagine you're hanging out at a park and you're looking for a place to sit and someone takes their very expensive coat and says, sit on this. We'd probably say, no way, I can't sit on that. that that's, that's improper. But that's, that's what Jesus is doing. It puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? It reminds me of John the Baptist when he says, Jesus, I'm not even worthy of untying your sandals. Back then, uh, servants would untie sandals and wash the feet of those above them. What John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy to sacrifice for you. Friends, this is who we're in the presence of. I was... As I was reflecting on this passage this week, I thought to myself, what would it look like if we lived like Jesus, this king was real? What would I need to sacrifice? What, would, what truth would I need to proclaim? What emotion would I need to pray uh, that God would fan into flame in my heart? What would that look for you, friends? What would it look like for you to live from Jesus, through Jesus, and to Jesus? It is my prayer that we would take this week and we would pray and respond in truth with emotions and with sacrifice. Church, come and worship the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and it is a privilege. It is a privilege to be here without a curtain, without bloody sacrifices, without trying to always constantly fulfill your law. It is a privilege to worship you unmediated. Well, actually mediated only through Jesus. We can worship you. We can love you. We can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can access the hope underneath all our hopes if we want to, if we trust, if we believe, we can access, access the joy underneath all our joys. And what we need here is for you to open the eyes of our hearts. This is a spiritual struggle. This is a spiritual event that needs to occur. Only you can help us to respond with truth give you the worship that a king of the universe is deserving of, to respond with emotions. Only you can soften our hearts. Only you can move our wills and soften us and transform us to respond with sacrifice. And all of these things, they are not a burden. They are a privilege. Thank you so much, Jesus for doing what you did, for riding in on a mule, for dying on, on behalf of all our sins, and then three days later being resurrected from the dead and giving all of us eternal life, 
eternal joy, eternal security, and eternal family. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.